ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Sophie Madison moved around a lot as a kid and as an adult she travelled all over the world. For a while Sophie worked in the film and TV industry in Brisbane, but as she approached her 30s she wondered if she would ever settle down or indeed whether she should settle down at all. And so Sophie made, of course, the most obvious, rational decision under the circumstances, which was to embark on an epic trek across Australia from the westernmost point of WA right across the continent to Byron Bay on the East Coast. This would be a walking journey of some 5,000 kilometres, and Sophie would do it with five camels that she had caught and trained herself. It took her five years of training and preparation. And then in 2020, Sophie took a swim in the waters of Shark Bay and then set out east with her five humped companions, Jude, Delilah, Charlie, Clayton and Mac, and they entered the red, empty vastness of Australia. Sophie's book is called The Crossing. Hi, Sophie. Hi, Richard. How did you find your way into the world of camels to begin with? How did you begin to experience the joy of camels? Yeah, well, I began at a camel dairy, actually, of all places. There are such things? There are such things. People milk camels out there. And um, I sort of stumbled upon it, actually. I, I, after working in film and TV, I was, I was really keen to do something in the outdoors and with animals, and I thought I would just do sort of a short summer job and then I'd go back to the real job. And um, I was chatting to uh, a girlfriend of mine and she mentioned that her auntie owned a camel dairy. And I thought, oh, that's, that's fascinating. I've never, I've never heard of people milking camels. And, uh, and so I really wanted to go out there and meet those camels. And I did. And it was almost love at first sight. They are adorable camels. They are. Up they until are. the point that they're not. But, but, <laughs> but, 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 but what did you adore about them to begin with? Uh, there was, I have this distinct memory of going into this paddock and there was maybe about a herd of 50 of them and they all surrounded me and they're much taller than you think camels. You know, I think a lot of people think that they're the size of a horse, but they're actually way, way taller than that. And especially with those long necks, they, they stand right above you. And camels like to get to, to know you face to face. So it can be a little intimidating at first because they reach those long necks down and they press their faces onto you and they take these deep, deep, intense smells. And, uh, yeah, and it was, it, was a, it was almost like they were sort of reading my soul, I guess. They were getting to know who I was, you know, beyond, beyond I guess, that, that other layer that we project to the world. So... Wanting to learn more about camels and the practices of camel milking, you went to a dairy in Michigan in the United States to see how they do things over there. What was special about this this dairy in the United States, Sophie? Yeah, it was a fascinating experience. I mean, I, I just love that after I got into camels, they just opened up this world of travel to me. You know, I was sort of a little bit sick of being a tourist and I wanted to be a traveller and to be immersed in, you know, different unique cultures. And having this, I guess, experience with camels just let me enter all of these unusual worlds. I had this connection with people in all different countries because of this, because of working with camels. So I ended up at this dairy in Michigan and they were a family of Mennonites and they had wow. been... right. Yes, this, it this was... This like an Amish type set. Exactly, yes. exactly. So they, they had been married in the Amish faith and then they had converted to Mennonites, which basically means that they were Amish in almost in every single way, except that they had embraced technology. So they had a computer at home, they drove around in cars, but otherwise... They dressed very Amish. They still went to church. They would wear bonnets going to church. You know, they believed in um, creation. Uh, yeah, it was it was very unique. And, and they milked camels there. And they milked camels there, yeah, of all places. So they had this beautiful red barn. Uh, like there's lots of lovely red barns in Michigan and green rolling fields. And, um, yeah, and they milked the camels in this red barn. And I, for a while, for a month while I was over there, lived above um, the the 
barn. You know, I've been to Morocco and I had camel fat on some bread once. It wasn't too bad, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but camel milk, there must be a market for it. Is, is it delicious? What's it like? Can you describe it in any way? I love it. I love it. Um, it's got, it actually comes out really pure white. Um, when you get uh, milk from a cow, it's almost got that creamy sort of look to it, whereas camel milk is very, very white. It's got a slight saltiness to it, um, which I always think tastes great in yeah. coffee, actually. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. sort of like, you know, it's that salted caramel thing. It goes really well in coffee. Yeah, and it's it's very, very nutritious for you as well. So in India, most of the men who are nomads with their camels, they will pretty much almost solely survive off camel milk during the day. They will just milk their camels and they'll walk all day and then they might have a little bit of dal at night, but the camel milk is very nutritious. So you spent some time at camel dairies in India as well. How did the idea for doing this big camel trek creep up in you? And did it creep up in you or did you sort of wake up one day and said, I'm just going to do this thing? No, that's a really good way of describing it, actually. It really did creep up on me. Um, You know, when I first started at the camel dairy on the Sunshine Coast, I wasn't at all expecting to do a big trek like this. And then the more I learned about camels and then I started to learn about the trekking side of camels and walking with them and learning about other people's camel trips. Obviously, Robin Davidson is a very famous one, but there's also Andrew Harper and other people who have crossed the country with camels. And, yeah, and I became just fascinated about the idea of doing my own trip and... Yeah, it felt like the perfect time, I guess, in my life. So you went to work at a, uh, a kind of tourist camel place in Uluru and worked there for years and you had a mentor there, a man named Chris who was sort of like your camel sensei, your camel mentor. What was he able to teach you while you were living there? Yeah, I I arrived at Uluru in the summertime and um, it was great because the summertime was the off-season, well, sort of off-season at Uluru. It was slightly less tourist numbers because obviously, as you know, the outback's really hot, so a lot of Australians don't visit Uluru uh, in the summer months. And so I was lucky enough that uh, Chris was able to sort of start to teach me how to train camels. And all of his camels for the tour came from the wild. So I was working, I was all of a sudden thrust into this environment with these pure, wild camels that were straight out of wandering around the outback and uh, it was a yeah a wild experience and so Chris yeah he started to teach me how to teach a camel to hush which means to sit down um, and you say hush to make it sit down is that hush yeah yeah I was always told to do, to say it in a very sort of deep voice like a hush so that's how you you don't shout it you can just go no whoosh. no it's almost like a soothing like hush like I mean enigmatic you can, Bedouin exactly right. yeah yeah I mean you can you, you say it in different ways too you know there's definitely a like whoosh you know if you're really serious <laughs> and these camels that are in the Australian outback they're actually much bigger and stronger than the camels that are sort of trekking through the Arabian Peninsula is that right mm, yeah we have like sumo, like massive camels in Australia. And that's just partly because our deserts are packed with feed for them. So they've got a smorgasbord out there and they just seem to have grown into these behemoths. I think that too, and, and, you know, a lot of the camels that were brought over to Australia, they were used for packing goods into the outback, so to uh, delivering these huge wool bales too. So probably by way of natural selection as well, I think those camels, you know, the strongest and biggest camels would have bred up and created this, yeah, very big and healthy wild herd. So Chris taught you how to catch wild camels, that's, that's one thing, to geld them. Pretty brutal experience. Um, but it has to be done if you're going to, done. doesn't it? It has to be done, yeah. And, um, and, you know, Chris was very good at it. He had he had a lot of years' experience as well. And, um, you know, the camels did have anaesthetic and everything. I, I, oh, I they thought, do? Right. I, yes, I, they do. It's my job to hold up the tail uh, as Chris got into the back end there with the, with the scalpel. So how did you find your camels for your trip? We went out to a station called Mulga Park Station and um, that's not far away from Uluru and, uh, yeah, we went mustering for these camels there and, and a lot of the fences there on properties, you know, the boundary, they're, they're such huge properties that the boundary fences are sometimes down in places. So these camels would have wandered in from any any of the western deserts basically. And uh, we headed out with a couple of these Mad Max-style buggies, a couple of motorbikes. I think one of the motorbikes might have been ridden by, you know, a 12-year-old kid, very country style. Uh, The whole family was involved uh, and Chris was there and uh, we we headed out with these vehicles to spot the wild camels and then once we'd spotted them, we started herding them back towards this set of yards. 
My word, you trained those cavils, and I've seen footage of you. The reason I know I've seen footage of you on your trek, and I've seen you settling them in for the night, and they've got their hobbles on, and they're all kneeling down quite happily, all in a perfect row. You know, it's a hell of a thing for a single human to master. Five camels like that, Sophie. You must have seen a video that was fairly recently because I, I remember it wasn't always like that oh, well. back in the day. <laughs> it was definitely took a long time, I remember, with mine, a long time to get them, uh, you know, to neatly sit down and, and so on. It, it's, yeah, you, you just can't rush these things with camels. When I first got mine into the yards there, they were terrified. Understandably, they're terrified of humans and so they cowered in the corner of the yard and they oh. wouldn't come anywhere near me. And it took months before they would eventually approach me. And, yeah, so it's a, it's a slow process training. They all had distinct personalities, these, these five camels you, you trained and, and singled out. Can you say there's affection between you like there is between a pet and a, and a, a pet's owner? Is, is, the, is it like that or is it something else? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, some people will say, oh, do they come when you're called? And people are imagining a dog or, and, you know, they're not like a dog. I think a dog is its own, you know, unique creature. There's, there's not domestic- nothing like a dog. No, they're not domesticated, are they? They're trained. It's a different thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah but there's definitely an affection Absolutely, there's an affection. And they have amazing memories, camels. You know, if you treat a camel well, they will remember that and they will remember you. If you don't treat a camel well, they will definitely remember you as well. And, uh, yeah, and I've seen my camels, you know, meet people and then it's been months and then they might meet that person again. And there's definitely a memory there. They do they do remember that person. So you went in quite a, well, I don't know, space of five years from being someone who works in film and TV to someone who can not only milk a camel but can tra- capture one, train one, and also make a saddle with an you know a metal frame for these these camels. That was a hell of a thing just to begin with, Sophie. So already you're sort of putting yourself in a kind of an interesting place. So then it was time to get, to go and to take these camels from Central Australia, head west all the way out to Shark Bay in Western Australia, the westernmost point of Australia. What's the country like around there, around that bay? What's it like when you get there and go for a swim in the waters there? Well, before I even got there, I remember thinking as I was driving in the truck with the camels, I, it was the first time I'd ever been to Western Australia and I just had this shocking reality check where all of a sudden we sort of crested this hill and there was just complete wilderness in front of me as far as the eye could see. Red wilderness. Red wilderness Mm. and just not, you know, a single sign of any town, human, anything out there besides the one road in front. And it's so terrifyingly beautiful, isn't it? It was absolutely and I think because it was it was this sudden almost reality check too. It was like oh, I've really embarked on something pretty big. <laughs> I've told everyone I'm yeah, doing it. <laughs> that's right. Right. Uh, and then momentarily, you know, that left me because I was I was just astounded by once I got to the coast and I was astounded by just the beauty of Shark Bay. Um, the water is this turquoise colour, very different to the east coast of Australia. And I and I just loved that contrast as well of, of that red dirt and red sand leading down to that turquoise blue ocean. So... Yeah, it was it was really beautiful. Now, this is 2020 and COVID-19 has just broken out. What did that mean for you, Sophie? It meant a lot of uncertainty at first. Um, there was definitely this lingering, you know, is this going to go ahead? Am I going to be able to do this? And then I suddenly actually started to realise that I was actually pretty lucky because if I hadn't driven across to WA at that time that I had, I would have actually got, got, in got locked right. out of the yeah. state. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. so I wouldn't have even been able to begin my trip. So so I got lucky in the sense that I was locked into the state that I was starting. I was in also in the biggest state in Australia, so it was going to take me a long time to even get out of WA. So I, I figured that I might as well just start walking and hope for the best because well, I didn't really have anything else that I could do at that point. And to be to be fair, you're also practising the most extreme kind of social distancing Absolutely. imaginable <laughs> if you think about it as well. What were you packing with you on these camels? Uh, a lot of equipment. It was uh, probably about 500 kilos worth of gear. Um, Did I, I see a solar panel there on, on your pack? Yeah, yeah, there was. Yeah, yeah. About the, um, it's kind of one that you sort of fold out basically. It packs down to the size of a, of a laptop and you can, you know, I think they're designed to, I, actually I remember when I bought it, calling up the solar panel people 
And, you know, they have solar panels for people that go hiking and then they have solar panels for people that go caravanning. I said, well, I'm doing a camel trek. Do you have any solar panels that go on camels? (laughs) So, yeah, they don't exist. (laughs) I took a caravanning one. So you would have to take a, a, well, you have a mobile phone for GPS and for phone calls whenever you're within range. Yeah. What about a satellite phone? Did you have one of those? Yeah, satellite phone um, and, yeah, the head torches needed charging as well on on that solar panel. Tons of Um, water. I expect? Tons of water. I had 12 jerry cans. Um, and at the beginning, I actually, when I set off with those, I didn't have all the jerry cans full. And that was because my camels were still pretty young and pretty untrained, basically. Um, I mean, I had spent a year training them, but they were still pretty fresh from the wild. And um, yes, yeah, so they weren't capable of carrying that amount of weight in water. And I had decided to pack all of the water on one particular camel, Mac, too, and he definitely wasn't up for that yet. So I was only filling, uh, I think at the beginning, maybe on the first day it was only two and, you know, and then I upped it to four and, uh, yeah, so they, they weren't all full at first. So to begin with, when you set out on this trek, I suppose part of you thinks, oh, at last I'm beginning it, but then you're kind of, you'd have to be beset for the first part of your journey by a thousand niggling worries like that. Yes, Yes, definitely. That first day I left, you know, once I was away from that beauty and that magical moment of being in the ocean, I I then started walking inland and then the you, worry began. Yeah, yes. you crossed the coastal highway there. Yes, I've I been up and down the, that a few times, that yes. coastal highway up WA, and then you go into the interior. And mm, I kind of, I've, I've stood there and beyond. looked into that interior. So the thought of going into that mm. alone, well, just you and your camels, is, is a stunning thought. Mm. As you are going through the desert, are you going mostly during night or, or pre-dawn or are you, walking, are you walking with them in the middle of the day? I was walking at first, walking with them in the middle of the day and it wasn't till later on that I started to go early, early into the morning and that was that wouldn't have been until, until right when I got out to, to the desert uh, and that was because the heat crept in then and I needed to go early. But I, I generally would always be... I. I would wake up early myself every single morning. I would wake up in the dark and that was because the camels needed to graze before we walked and also at the end of the day too. So, so much of of my day, you know, in some ways the walking is the easy part. It sounds funny because the rest of the day is consumed with packing everything up, loading it onto the camels, uh, you know, and then you're setting off and then at the end of the day unpacking all of that gear and then the camels have to eat food. So then you're chasing them around constantly, you know, and then you're tying them up at night, removing hobbles, putting hobbles back on. So there's there's a, a lot, you know, of other stuff that goes on around the walking. How do they sleep at night? Do they lie down or do they sleep standing up? Mm, they do. They sit down, yeah. So I would generally, I would find where I wanted to camp and uh and how I would find that is I would really look for the types of bushes that the camels like to eat and I would try and pick out at least uh, three bushes around my campsite there and I would tie three of the camels up, uh, sometimes four, um, around my camp uh, so that they were all really close just in case because they can get tangled in a rope overnight. So I would always, always be sleeping with one ear open just to make sure that that they were okay during the night. And are they are they noisy sleepers or quiet sleepers at night? I love sleeping out with the camels. Why? Um, I love listening to the sound of them chew their cud. So once they're finished eating, so generally the bush that you tie to, they'll eat for a while and then they'll sit down and then they'll start to ruminate. So they'll chew their cud and it's just this very just peaceful soundtrack, I think. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, peaceful soundtrack to, to the evening. I'm a bit romantic about these long walks and I have a picture in my head uh, um, of you walking with these camels in the pre-dawn darkness with the stars everywhere above you going through this red earth, this tufty ground. It seems so pretty in my head. Is it that pretty? It is. It is. I, I actually particularly enjoyed walking in the early hours of the morning when I was walking in, in the dark. Because, cool air in your nostrils. Yeah, the mm. cool air and, you know, the stars above. I mean, the stars would be lessened because I would generally be trying to walk when there was a, a fairly full moon. But it was, it's almost this feeling of, of time standing still uh, and that you're just the only, only ones in this world this ancient, ancient, ancient world. Mm. You write that at times, rather than feel the kind of open expanse of the desert, you felt it 
pressing in on you. What do you mean by that? Definitely that was the case when I first set off uh, and I was heading in after I'd crossed that coastal highway and I was heading into the interior of Western Australia. There was a lot of a lot of mulga or a lot of shrubby bush. Um, so it actually, it, it didn't feel open in a way. And because the bush, because it's so dead flat, there's nowhere that you can see out. So you have this almost claustrophobic feeling of, yeah, the bush pressing in around you. And I would head off to go and follow my camels as they grazed and I would only walk two or three metres and sometimes I would turn around and realise that I couldn't see camp. And the bush all around you looks incredibly the same. You know, it's all this sort of green, green, grey bush and especially if there was an overcast day, then you've got no orientation with the sun. And I definitely remember, you know, getting the camels together to lead them back to camp and I luckily made a note that I would always have my phone on me so that I knew how to get back to camp because I would make sure I put a waypoint where camp was. Um, and I remember walking the camels back to camp without looking at my phone thinking, oh, it's just, just round the corner there. And then camp still didn't appear, camp still didn't appear. Surely it's over, you know, just by that gum tree over there. No, that's not the gum tree, you know, and then you lose all sense of orientation and it really, it throws your confidence actually. Going further into the interior of WA, you crossed a salt lake, almost got caught in there and then there was an incident and all hell broke loose. This is the most dangerous moment of your entire journey. What was it that spooked the camels to begin with, with this incident? Mm. A black cow in the bushes, of all things. Why, um, why did that scare the camels? The camels were very spooky, actually, when I first set off on my journey, and it was something I never anticipated. I had worked, you know, in all these tourism operations with these beautiful, quiet camels that had been doing their jobs for years on end. I stupidly hadn't realised that when you take camels from the wild, it takes a long time for them to settle down and to, you know, be exposed to all of these different things. So So it sees a black cow and it goes, that's a predator or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think it was just camels as well have this funny thing. They love open spaces too. So they love being able to see out to the horizon. And this cow was sort of lurking down a little bit of a sort of shallow creek bed in the shade and I think it must have just... Jude must have just seen it out of the corner of his eye, saw a movement, and all of a sudden, yeah, it was it was a big monster. And what happened then? And then uh, in a split second, because it all happened just so incredibly fast, Jude pulled the rope out of my hand, uh, well, pulled me. I fell face flat on the ground. Uh, I was holding the lead rope for a little while until I realised then that I couldn't hold it any longer and I let go of the lead rope. And I sort of watched then all of the camels basically because they're all linked together by ropes, they all toppled over themselves. So Jude was pulling forward. He pulled the other camels forward with him. More panic. Mac was down on his side. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and I remember just thinking, oh, one of them's going to have broken a leg for sure. Uh, But then they got up and um, then they just bolted in absolute terror and... I, for some reason, I had I had sort of imagined this episode happening. I thought, what happened if they did pull the lead rope out of my hand and, and took off? But I always sort of thought that they would just, I don't know, I just thought that they would stop for some reason and they didn't. I'd sort of neglected to realise how much terror an animal can build up its side and it's just going through that flight instinct, that and, total and, panic. And what had they taken with them when they took off? They had taken absolutely everything that... I needed to survive in the bush. Your phone? So your, your sad phone? I had, it was about two months in and I'd become a bit sort of blasé about everything now and, yeah, and I packed the sat phone away into the saddlebags. I packed the emergency. I wasn't even carrying my emergency beacon. Um, I had packed that all the way into the saddlebags. I wasn't even carrying water. I'd sort of thought, oh, yeah. So I'll, what, did you ha- what did they leave you with when they took off? Nothing? Nothing. I had my tiny little pocket knife attached to the belt, attached to my belt. And what did you do? Um, And I had had my phone on me, but I hadn't realised until I started running after my camels. I I then suddenly felt for my phone in my back pocket and realised that it had actually come out of my hand because I'd been using it to navigate because at the time that they took off, I had veered off 
the track that I was following and I was now in the middle of the bush. So I wasn't following any track at this point. No phone, no no EPIRB, no water, no nothing and no camels. What did you do? I started running very, very fast after them. I mean, camels walk, they look very docile and they can walk incredibly slowly. But I tell you what, when they run, they run. And uh, and I just remember heaving and puffing and panting as I ran after them and just feeling like, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to keep up and I wouldn't be able to to get there and I'd never make it to them. And they actually, I started losing sight of them. They would go up and down a little dip and I'd lose sight of them in the dip and I had to stop and listen to the sound of the jerry can racks just smashing about on Mac's saddle and and that was about the only way that I could kind of locate where they were and then I would take off running after them again and then I would just catch a glimpse of them on the horizon and then I would just keep pushing myself forward. It's the only time I've, I've ever sort of run with this feeling of like my life being in danger running. How did you catch them in the end? Look, I got really lucky. I I saw them in the distance um, and I had caught up to them at one point and, I, and I'd taken out my pocket knife and I thought if I can just cut the last two camels off, then I'll at least have hold of two of them. But just as I got there, they spooked again, they kept going. And then I I saw them in the distance. They had gone tangled around a bush. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So how did you manage to bring them back under control, Sophie? I think that they turned around this bush and their ropes got all tangled in, uh, in amongst themselves and my lead camel, Jude, basically couldn't get out because because the string had spiralled in. And uh, so at that point I, I caught up to them and I managed to grab hold of the beautiful safety of that rope again and uh, tied him directly to a tree and then basically just collapsed in, in this realisation that, you know, I just had this terrifying, terrifying experience. You adored Jude, your lead camel, but were you angry with Jude at oh, that moment? I was so angry with him. That's when I used my very stern hush. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, was, I was incredibly mad. But, and it's that kind of mad I think I used to get with the camels. It's that kind of mad almost I'd imagine like a parent has like... I'm so mad at you because you could have hurt yourself. I turn my back for five <laughs> seconds and you run into traffic. <laughs> that's that it. That kind of thing. That's, right. that's it. Yes. I've told you, you know, not to play with, with yeah. on the road, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and, I was, mm. and I was terrified. I was always terrified that something was going to happen to them because, you know, what if one of them broke a leg out there and, you know, I was miles away and, and you know, there was no vet going to come out to save me. So, so thankfully after that whole episode, yeah, none of them had broken a leg or anything like that um, and I was luckily able to retrace their pad prints and uh, retrieve my phone again and the rest of the equipment that has sort of fallen off. So you kept going further east, crossed over the border into South Australia and went into the Great Victoria Desert and you're passing through the traditional lands of the Oak Valley community there who came out to meet you. What kind of a welcome did they give you when you arrived? Oak Valley was amazing. Um, they well, first of all, they they actually sort of discovered me on the trail a little earlier. I had they given you permission, by the yeah, way. I should say I, that, yeah, so, yeah, exactly. I, yeah. So I'd been in contact with them because I needed to get a permit to go across Aboriginal land there, and um, I had done a couple of other Aboriginal permits that had gone through sort of government organisations, and this was the first one that actually came back through a community themselves, and they wanted to know what safety gear I was carrying, how much water I had, how much food I had, so on. So it was always that feeling right from the beginning that they actually really cared uh, and they cared about my safety. And then they got in contact with me and they said that they wanted to to bring the community out and meet me out there in the middle of the desert. Who is this woman uh, leading all these camels across Australia? That's mm. it. And and I said, definitely. And, and so they had agreed to bring me out water. But then I was also short on water even before that agreed 
that uh, agreed meeting. The weather had heated up in the Great Victoria Desert. I was It was coming into September time and it had got sort of unexpectedly hot and the camels were starting to get really, really thirsty. And I knew that I was sort of pushing them. I'm sure they would have been okay, I guess, but as a worried mother, I, you know, it's horrible to see, <laughs> see them, see them be so thirsty. And so the Oak Valley community actually were driving the road, checking on sacred sites and they stumbled across my tracks and they hunted me down. And I was there on a very hot afternoon underneath the shade of a black oak, just basically trying to wait out the heat of the afternoon. I think I'd been walking since three in the morning in the dark and, um, they actually had extra water on board their utes and were able to give my camels this this massive drink, which they were very appreciative of. So from that day, they, they just, they became great friends really. And it was this feeling after having been so isolated in the desert and doing it all on my own that that there was someone out there, you know, looking out for me. There seems to have been incredible hospitality you experienced on the stations and in with uh, in the Aboriginal communities you went into along the way. There's enormous goodwill. It's really lovely to see actually and a lot of a lot of tenderness and um, encouragement you got from those people. The right people arrived at the right time yeah. to help me. I got very very lucky. While you were there with that community, you saw one of the um, aunties there stood on the on the porch of her place and looked out and saw what she said was a piria a hot desert wind blowing in which presaged a mighty, mighty desert storm. Tell me what it's like to experience that kind of powerful desert storm. I really loved meeting the Oak Valley community and and starting to get to know these these words for these elements too out there. I think having been in the desert by that point for probably, I think I'd been there by about for about two months and I was starting to just feel so in tune with all of the land and uh, knowing which way the wind was coming from, knowing what the moon was doing, knowing where all the stars were. And, and yeah, I was talking to Oak Valley about, you know, this, this hot dust storm desert wind that came up and she said, it's Piria, it's the wind that comes down from the, uh, from the northern deserts. And, and I loved that I had this, this sort of name to describe it now in their language, the language of the land. And, um, but yeah, I remember watching those clouds coming in and thinking, oh, and, and it, it, it happened a few times, you know, I'd seen clouds gather and it was always just a spot or two of rain. And, you know, I thought it you know, might be an anticlimax. And I remember coming, bringing the camels back into, into camp that afternoon and, and they were sort of a particularly frisky. And I thought, oh, yeah, I think maybe they've sensed that it's something more too. So it was this batten down the hatches, tie them all to bushes, you know, get all my gear secure. I said, set up my little shelter. And I thought, oh, great, I'll I'll sit out there under the shelter and, and read a book. And then this huge gust of wind came in right before that, that big downpour and ripped up my ripped up my shelter and was flapping it all about in the wind. And I ended up crawling underneath one of the bushes that the camels were tied to and just watching the tarp fly around uselessly and just waiting out waiting out uh, the rain underneath this bush. Yeah, but, and then the skies opened and the mm, rain came down in the desert. In torrents. In torrents, torrents, really? Yeah, wow. absolutely. It just, abs- yeah. It, I've never heard of such a damp desert crossing as you have you, you've made. <laughs> I mean, it's, you seem to have caught the La Nina or something, I don't know, that really brought down the rains on well, you. Well, it actually had been very, very dry. It had been dry for about five months. I hadn't had really really particularly any rain at all. There was maybe, you know, a tiny little bit of damp dampness one morning. That was it. So the rain in the desert has this sort of like, it almost makes you go a little bit wild and crazy, yeah, yeah. you know, until well, you you've experienced, yeah. you don't, you don't realise that when you haven't seen rain for that long and you've been dealing with dry conditions. And, and so I was hooting and screaming and absolutely loving watching the rain come down. And, and when you push out again with your camels and, and get back onto the, the track again, uh, did, did the rain transform the desert like it's said to do? Mm, it did. It did. It, be, it had been actually very bleak until then. Um, there was wildfires that had crossed through the desert and had burnt a lot of the the, the feed and the vegetation out there and and uh, made the sand dunes look very bare and uh, and very harsh really and uh, and then when the rain came it was amazing how quickly it happened just you know overnight parakelia which is this green succulent plant started peeking through the sand dunes just seemingly out of nowhere I guess the seeds lay dormant in there and um, and it has this, it's beautiful pink flower oh. pink or 
pink or purple and um, and it just coats these red dunes and looks absolutely spectacular. And did birds come out as well? Birds came out in the hundreds, you know, and especially having having had walked through the desert in winter, um, you know, it can seem quite like there's no animals out there um, and very sort of silent and, and lifeless, which, of course, it's not. Most of it's sort of happening at night where you don't see. But then as soon as the rain came, it like it just sprung into life and budgerigars were swarming overhead and all little finches everywhere darting from the bushes. It was just magical. Then when you were going through uh, Copley in the Flinders Ranges, you met this nice, very handsome young man called Jimmy who was really interested in your trek really supportive uh, and was incredibly helpful, able to do all kinds of things for you. Wasn't that nice? <laughs> yes, it was It was such an unexpected surprise and, and, and I think at first I, I didn't realise that uh, Jimmy, this boy, might have actually been interested in in me, not just... Really? Of, yeah. Really? He was hanging around all the time, <laughs> wanting to help you with absolutely everything, driving enormous distances just to be with you? Wow. Uh, but then the penny dropped. Then the penny dropped, yes. And, um, yeah, he did. He did an amazing number of Ks, back and forth, back and forth, to come and take time off with me every time I braked with the camels and, and a love interest formed. <laughs> when you were going through... Uh, you, you went into uh, into Queensland, crossed through Cameron Corner uh, on the border there of Queensland, South Australia and New South Wales and came to a place called Tuna House. It's Outback House where a woman called Phyllis was living there. What an extraordinary woman. She did a tarot card reading. How amazing to get a tarot card reading in, the in a house the in the middle of the outback. What did you get from that reading? A lot of it was, um, you know, a feeling that I was on the right track I mean, partly I just absolutely loved that I kept meeting these characters along the way. Phyllis didn't look anything like a person that would do a tarot card reading. Really? She was tough as nails. She, uh, I think, probably would drink most men under the table. Um, She lived alone in this house um, along the dog fence. She was a boundary rider and uh, she was basically in charge of 200 k's of fence all on her own, patching up this fence, shooting dingoes and, you know, she was she could do anything, fix anything. She was a tough woman. And then to, to then go in her house and, and find that there was tarot cards out uh, was, was just this... I just love the characters. I love the characters in the outback. And uh, But, yeah, she made me... She definitely made me feel that I was on the right track with the trek and that... Jimmy was the right person that I should be with at the time and uh, gave me some confidence there. As you had travelled so far, with a break in the middle between summers, uh, for the summer, as you had travelled so far, these thousands of kilometres, because you're in Queensland at this point, had you then long since passed the point where getting up in the morning, preparing the... Uh, packing up the campsite, preparing the camels, getting on the road again and walking these like 18, 20, 25 kilometres in a day where it had stopped being stressful and it had just become second nature and you could just enjoy it. Mm. Yeah, I had. I I sort of reached that point almost without even knowing I had reached that point. Uh, in the early days it was, you know, constant worry about you know, whether the camels would be okay, whether I'd packed the gear right, the timings, whether I was giving them enough time to eat and everything. And then all of a sudden, well, not maybe all of a sudden, it was a gradual process, I guess, I I started to let that go. It's like driving a car, you know, when you learn to drive, it's really stressful. Everything has to be done to your front of mind. And then one day you realise you've driven to the airport without even thinking about it. it. Is that it? That's it. And I specifically remember it, I was kind of in the corner country. um, So around Cameron Corner, heading into Queensland and... And there was just beautiful fiery red dunes there. It was it was magical country. And then I'd entered after Phyllis's house, this area known as the Bullagree, and it's this um, runoff of the Bullo River. And it's this sort of marshland, but this mottle of, of golden sand dunes. And no one goes there. It's kind of at the tail end of everyone's station. It's not particularly usable station land. It's not really a tourist attraction in any way. It was, it was very empty space. And I started to slow down because I didn't want the journey to end. Uh, I, I didn't want to get to the to the east coast and to the population there and I was just 
really starting to love every moment of the trip and love that routine that I had with the camels just getting up and simply walking and having that space and time. Did you have that delicious feeling being in that big space that when there's no one around? That, that no one really knows about, not really, uh, it's not a well-known place at all, that on the one hand you're a tiny speck on a, a gigantic earth, a tiny speck, and yet at the same time thinking all this has been made for me. This has been put here just for me for my private enjoyment right here and now. Mm, yeah, definitely, yeah. It's an amazing feeling and, um, and I think you feel sort of like appropriately insignificant out there. Happily um, insignificant. Happily insignificant, mm. exactly. So you keep going and at some point, again, you must realise that as you get further towards the Great Dividing Range in Queensland, uh, going past Gundawindi, going past Texas, all those towns along the border there, that you're leaving remote Australia behind. Did your heart break a little? Definitely, definitely, yeah. As I said, in that corner country, I remember looking on the maps and seeing the, the lines of the sand dunes on my topographical maps end and having that heartbreaking moment that thought, there's no more desert. There's no more desert to be crossed now between me and the coast. And uh, the desert had been so terrifying to me, for me in the beginning. You know, it was this real feeling of foreboding, knowing that I was entering the Great Victoria Desert and that I would be in this vast space. But then I had loved it. I had loved it so much and I'd grown comfortable in that space. And then I realised I was leaving that space and, uh, yeah, heading towards traffic and mountains and everything that goes as well with traffic, extra people, uh, tighter roads, windy corners, everything that is hard to navigate with camels, speeding cars. Uh, yeah, so I realised that the going was actually going to get a lot more tough and that the hard part wasn't actually the desert, the hard part was reaching the coast. Yeah, because by the time you got into the Darling Downs, you were a bit of a star. You know, you get into Stanthorpe and every, every, every man jack in the town comes out and wants to see you, all the kids want to see the camels, you were asked to do take part in a town meeting at the Stanthorpe Community Centre there and was it hard to find time to continue your walk and fulfil your social media and public commitments at this point, I wonder? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a hideous thing in some ways, social media, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, and I envied at that point, you know, Robin Davidson living in, a, in, in that era of not having that social media. Um, I mean, it was, it, you know, it's this, it's this funny double-edged sword. It's, uh, you know, on one hand, it's, it's so lovely and, you know, revalidating, I guess, that, you know, people are following your journey and people are interested in it. And on the other hand, you know, you just... You just want your own space and you just want the actual time and space to be able to be on the journey and not answering everyone's messages and I love it and I hate it. <laughs> At some point near Lismore, uh, an older bloke gave just thrust a $50 note into your hand without you asking for it, needless to say, and you said, oh, I don't want this. And you wanted to give it back to me. He said, no, no, just take it, just buy, buy camel feed for it or something. I'm struck reading your story of how much tender attention you got from Older Australian men along the way. There was a man you call Mur yeah. Murdoch who early on taught you how to shoot properly, which mm. a skill you really needed when you were being confronted by some terrifying wild bull camels. And every step of the way there were these men who sort of came forward with this kind of almost fatherly concern mm. for you. You seem to have, I don't know, struck something in their imaginations. What was it, do you think, that mm. uh, moved these, these uh, older blokes so much? It was nice actually seeing, you know, how much respect they had for me as a woman. And and there was never, you know, it was always one of the questions that people asked, uh, you know, did you, did you ever, you know, did you feel unsafe out there? Um, I think the outback sort of conjures up this feeling, you know, from having seen movies like Wolf Creek and other things that, you know, there's all these weirdos lurking out there. Yeah, and country uh, people say the same thing about the city too. Oh, yeah, you ever feel well, in danger when you're well, in Sydney? that's true, yeah. You know, you know, yeah. You know, there's weirdos lurking everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, I had the absolute opposite experience. Yeah. Um, you know, I met so many people that on the outside, older, single men, you know, that people might have thought, oh, this is a, this could, you know, pose a strange or awkward situation. And not once, not once. Everyone was nothing but kind and supportive. And it was this respect, I guess, I had from a lot of the men that I was, that they were seeing me as a woman and I was so capable can you tell me about the moment when you were on the road and you caught your first glimpse of the Pacific Ocean? 
Yeah, it pulled on my heartstrings uh, and sort of caught me unaware. It it just came up. We just rounded a corner and, and there it was. And I, I got so used to just compartmentalising the whole trip. I, there was, I couldn't think about reaching Byron Bay because it just felt so overwhelmingly huge. And so I had started to develop this conscious effort of um, basically, you know, every day I'm just going to get up and I'm going to go for a walk with my camels. That's all I would think. I'm just going to get to the next water point or the next station. And I started to really break the trip into bite-sized pieces. And so when the ocean was there, it, it sort of took me unaware almost. And You'd been putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah, I was just putting one foot in front of the other. And, um, and then there was this huge glittering expanse of, of blue and, uh, and I just yeah, I couldn't believe it. What do you remember of that final walk down to the beach at Byron Bay? Well, after we saw that beautiful expanse of ocean, then I had to all of a sudden pull it back together uh, because we were just about to cross a busy road and a huge truck came past and <laughs> Jude started to dance around and lead it and swing out and pull the other camels into danger. And I thought, okay, we're not at the ocean yet. We've got to get down to business. We've got to get these camels safely there. And then we started, yeah, the trek down the hill and kind of snuck into Byron the back doorway, actually. Um, really? Can you do that with five camels, yeah, though? Yeah, amazing. Can you sneak into town with five camels? <laughs> amazingly, you can. So there was an old abandoned train line that, uh, that led out to the coast and I discovered that that was my way underneath the Pacific Highway because otherwise I was going to have to, yeah, cross that huge arterial thoroughfare, you know, that goes up and down the coast. And uh, I, I would have created quite a spectacle doing that, I think. So... I I managed to sneak through this sort of swampy area where this old abandoned train line was that was covered in reeds and um, lantana and everything and we squeezed through underneath this, underneath the highway with all of the trucks going over our heads and we got to our final camp before the ocean. Did you have a swim in the waters at Byron Bay like you had in Shark Bay when you started your trip? There was a little too many people on the beach for a uh, for a naked swim like there was in Shark Bay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I did after after the journey's end. I ended up going back to the beach and and going swimming. Um, but it was I got to dip my toes in and and that was enough. You know one of the lovely moments in your book is when you say that Jimmy was there with you and. And he was like, you'd come to the end of this and you sort of fell to your knees with kind of sense of accomplishment and exhaustion and feeling overwhelmed by the whole thing. But Jimmy was like going, great, we're here in Byron Bay, we've got the whole summer ahead of us. <laughs> so he was still looking forward to things. He was always the optimist, yeah, always the optimist. And 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 it was a bit like that, that, you know, everyone was sort of asking me how I was feeling about the end of the journey, end of the journey. But in some ways it didn't even feel like the end of the journey because there was always the next the next thing to organise and the next thing to look forward to. And and by that point I had planned to move back to the Flinders Ranges with Jimmy, but before then we had, like we, you said, we had this whole summer to look forward to and so it was sort of like a moving from the camel trek to the next adventure really. Now you're based in the north of the Flinders Ranges. You're living there at the moment and that's such a beautiful part of the world, mm, stunningly beautiful yeah, really part is. of the world. Yeah, are you addicted to that world, do you think? Uh, the reason I ask is when I interviewed Andrew Harper, he, the, the famous man who's been on many camel treks through the Simpson Desert and back, he really wasn't happy being in big city Brisbane when I interviewed him there. He kept saying the word humbug. That's what living in the big city <laughs> was like, humbug. It was like inauthentic and mad and, and foolish and couldn't wait to get back to the outback again. Are you like that or not quite like that? Not quite like that. I think I've got the ability to be able to be a chameleon. And I think that was one of the things that I guess most appealed to me and, and one of the reasons I fell in love with Jimmy is that we're both a bit chameleons. We both don't belong in either world. We don't belong in the outback or we don't belong in the city. Or maybe we belong in both, I'm not sure. And I think it's nice to be able to switch between the two. And uh, But there's definitely a huge feeling of peace I have when I enter those wide open spaces again and when I'm back in the Flinders and 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 I look around and I can see the horizon. It's just, it's this feeling that, you know, none of the insignificant stuff matters. The noise quietens and and you're able to just to just see the world around you and the world in front of you a little more clearly, I think. 
Most of the best dreams I've ever had have been dreams of walking, going on a long walk somewhere, and they, they feel very peaceful and very satisfying. Do you think that's something in that? There's something very deeply seated within us to want to do such a thing like this. Mm. I don't know. Do, and is that why do you think people responded so emotionally mm. to your long walk with your camels? Yeah, yeah. I think there was, I think people, I think there was a lot of people I met along the way that expressed to me, I would have loved to do something like this. Maybe if it wasn't with the camels, it might have been, you know, yeah, another long walk or, you know, some people told me that they wanted to do a donkey trip or other things and, but obviously it's it's very hard for people to take the amount of time that I took off. You know, it was, it was a two-year trip with a year before preparing and even more years before that learning how to work with camels. So, you know, it is really hard for people to take that amount of time off. And I think some of the, the joy that people had in, in sharing um, on my journey and maybe the reason why people gave me donations was because they, they wanted to feel a part of that trip. And it was so lovely to get to share that with so many people along the way and see people's joy when they met the camels too. And I've so enjoyed this journey vicariously with you now, Sophie. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much, Richard. Podcast, broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Sophie Madison's book is called The Crossing. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. like conversations about big stuff, it doesn't get much bigger than parenting. I'm Maggie Dent, author, parenting educator and the queen of common sense parenting. You may have heard me on conversations before, a few times, but did you know I have an ABC podcast? Actually, it's an award-winning podcast. It's called Parental As Anything. We tackle those big parenting problems straight on, the big ones and the small ones, while giving lots of practical tips and common sense solutions along the way. So if you have tweens, teens, grandchildren or little ones of your own, let me help you be the parent you really want to be. Well, at least some of the time. Find Parental as Anything in the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.